the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the third chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. What do you think about baptism? When you reflect about baptism, or if you reflect about baptism, what is it that comes to mind? What is it? What is it good for? What does it do in your life, or what has it done in your life? Do you treasure it? Is it something in the past? Is it the kind of thing you're unsure about? What do you think about baptism? That's the question to consider today. And today we will learn from Jesus himself how we should think about baptism. But first, let's go through a list of some of the ways the world or other Christians think about baptism. For many, baptism is just disregarded altogether. It is thought of as a symbol Something that reflects something else. So, for instance, if you really believe, then to show how much you believe, you should get baptized. It's just something on the outside, something that doesn't change anything for you. It's just a way to show how much you love God. It's a symbol. That's one of the ways that baptism is thought of. At other times, baptism is thought of in a superstitious sort of way like a good luck charm, like when you see somebody making the sign of the cross really, really fast in quick procession because they're scared of something like that. That is the kind of superstition that baptism is often thought to be. This is just a good luck charm. It's a it's a way to make sure that all your bases are covered, like carrying around a rabbit's foot. That's what baptism is to many people. Oh, I was baptized, and so everything's going to be okay. Or I was baptized. God must love me. God must be taking care of me. I was baptized, and I don't have to worry about sin. I don't have to worry about what I do in my life. I don't have to worry about the devil. I don't have to think about any of those things. I could just carry on and live exactly as I want to. That's the way baptism is often thought of, as a superstition. Other times, baptism is thought of as an occasion for a family event, kind of like a birthday party, an occasion for photos for a child to be dressed up real cute and picturesque. It's uh, an occasion for families to get together, to be together, and to celebrate. That's one of the ways baptism is regarded, kind of trivially. Could have been any other occasion, but that's a great way to get together, isn't it, at church? And to enjoy the celebration of new life. Also, baptism is often thought of simply as a get-out-of-jail-free card. If I've been baptized, then I have license to do whatever I please. If I've been baptized... Then I can sin all I want. After all, doesn't baptism take away my sin? Can't I just rest in that, that all my sin is gone? And now, God, since he has forgiven all of my sin, I can go on sinning all the more. That's the way baptism is often regarded. Actually, it would be better to say that in all of those ways, baptism is disregarded. It is treated as something small 
and insignificant. Something far less than what it actually is. It is treated as something that isn't what God intends for us, isn't as glorious as what he has in mind. And you can see that so clearly in our gospel lesson today. See how valuable, how precious, how glorious baptism is. When Jesus comes to John and asks John to baptize him, John objects. And it makes sense. It's a sound objection. John knows who Jesus is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... If anybody's going to be doing baptizing, it is that guy. If anyone needs to be baptized, it is me. And that is exactly what John says. I need to be baptized by you. And notice the importance of that word need. He doesn't say, I want to be baptized by you. Or wouldn't it be nice if you baptized me? Instead, John knows that whatever baptism is giving, he needs it. I need to be baptized by you. John kind of gets put in his place as Jesus calms him down and says, No, no. Instead, do what I've told you to do. Baptize me, John, in order to fulfill all righteousness. And that shows you even greater significance in baptism. It is something that even Jesus needs in order to fulfill all righteousness. It's not something that Jesus needs in order to take away his sins. He has no sins, but... He values it so highly that he subjects himself to it as well. Jesus deigns to be baptized by John. He treasures it. And then see what happens. It's this epic moment as Jesus comes out of the water and the heavens are ripped apart. And a voice comes from the heavens, the voice of the Father himself, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased And the Spirit descends, hovering over Jesus, hovering over the waters. And in that picture, you can see just what is going on in baptism. It is like creation all over again. Remember, at the very beginning of the story, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters, and God spoke, and there was light, and there was earth, and there were plants, and there were animals, and there was humankind. God did all of those things in creation. And here, in the baptism of Jesus, he is doing it again. That is what baptism is. It is creation all over again. If you could picture how monumental, how glorious, how magnificent that moment was, those six days of creation when God spoke everything into existence, that is how glorious, how magnificent, how monumental baptism is. St. Matthew describes the scene, as do the other gospel writers, so that we won't miss the point. In baptism, something miraculous is happening. And here is what it is. It matters that Jesus goes to the waters of baptism because he says, There in these waters of baptism, I will join myself to you. I will become yours and you will become mine. I will be your groom and you will be my bride. What else does it mean? When Jesus says, it is thus fitting to fulfill all righteousness. This is the way that we do what God sent me to do. This is the way I become your Savior, is in the waters of baptism. It is being joined together with Jesus just like in a wedding. And that's one of the pictures I'd like to have you hold in mind today about baptism. It's like a bridegroom marrying his bride, meeting at the altar to say their I do's. To agree that they will have and hold each other forever till death parts them, and in this case, through death unto eternal life. But think back again to the way that the world and many Christians, in fact, disregard baptism. What would that be like 
in terms of a wedding. Well, here's the way to think of it. Imagine a bride who is, on her own, hopeless, helpless. She's got nothing going for her. She is lost. She is forsaken. Just like many of the brides that we hear about in the Bible. For instance, remember the story of Ruth. Ruth, who was a foreigner, a Moabite woman, who followed her mother-in-law, Naomi, both widows, to Bethlehem, where they had no hope. Naomi's husband had died, and Naomi's son, Ruth's husband, had died, and they both were resigned to live together without hope, without a future. Naomi said, even if I were to have more children, Ruth, would you wait for them to marry again? You have no hope. Lost and forsaken, without a future. But then the story goes that Ruth happened to be gleaning in someone's field. She was picking up the fallen grain, which is what poor people would do in the Old Testament. They would pick up the fallen grain that was left behind by the reapers. The reapers were supposed to leave it behind so that the poor would have something to eat. Ruth was gleaning in a man's field, and his name was Boaz. And it just so happened that he was a relative of Naomi. And that was good news for Ruth, because it was the responsibility of a relative to redeem a widow like Ruth, to save her to marry her, to take her into his home, to have a family with her, to be fruitful and multiply, to give her a future and a hope. And here she found herself in Boaz's field, and he marries her. He takes her into his home in spite of what everyone might say, in spite of the fact that he is old and she is young, in spite of the fact that she might have found someone else, someone who would please her better. She marries Boaz. And from that family comes King David, comes Jesus himself. What fruitfulness there is out of that hopeless situation. Now imagine, imagine a bride like that, Ruth, who says, I'm going to marry Boaz. But when Boaz says, meet me at the altar, and there we will share our vows, and I will be yours and you'll be mine. Imagine if Ruth said, but why at the altar? I'm not particularly fond of that place. Why should we make vows to one another? Why should we make these promises? What good is that for you And for me, can't you marry me somewhere else, out in the field, in the forest, up on a mountain? What if I meet you there? That won't change anything. That altar is not a special place. I'll look great in my dress in a different light. That's where I'd like to be. So if I meet you there, then I can get all of your stuff, and maybe I'll just go back to my friends and live the way that I lived before. What difference does it make, Boaz? Why should we go to the altar and get married? What a ridiculous thing that would be for Ruth to say. Why should Ruth go to the altar to meet Boaz? It's because that is where Boaz has promised to be. That is where he has pledged himself to Ruth. She's missing the point entirely if she thinks that the place doesn't matter. The altar matters not because the altar is special, not because it is built of some magical material, not because that place is holy in and of itself. The thing that makes the altar special for Ruth and for Boaz is because the groom has promised to meet her there to take her into his life, to have and to hold till death us do part. This is what makes the water special. It is not because it is magical water. It is not because it is of holy origins. It's not because it came from some special river or was drawn from some special well. It is holy simply for this reason. Because in that water, Jesus has promised to meet us. And if we, like so many, say, why water? 
what good is water going to do for me? Why should I be baptized in water? Why should I meet you in water? Why should I gather with Christians in God's house in church? What's so special about that place? What's so special about those people? What's so special about these things? The answer is this. It is where Jesus has promised to meet us. And that is everything. How foolish we would be to say, like a foolish bridegroom, I don't need to meet you there. I'd rather be married somewhere else. I'd rather make my vows somewhere else. How foolish we would be to imagine that any other place is where our bridegroom will meet us. That's where Jesus has promised to be, in the waters of holy baptism. Here's another analogy that might help clarify it a little bit. Imagine that you're a patient who needs to have surgery. You've got something wrong with you. You need to have your appendix, appendix removed. And so you make an appointment with the surgeon on such and such a date at such and such a time. And they say, okay, show up at the operating room. And that's where we'll put you on the table and subject you to anesthesia. And we'll cut out your appendix. Imagine if you said, but why there? Why on that table? Why do you have to use that knife? Why do I have to have that anesthesia? Why do you have to wear that mask? What a fool you would be to say, can't you do this any other way? No. That is where the surgeon has promised to perform the operation. That is where he does his work, the waters of baptism. That is where Jesus saves sinners. It boggles the mind. It doesn't make any sense. How can water do such great things? That's the right question to ask. And the answer is not because of anything we can understand. It is simply because of this, because of the word of Jesus. John objects to Jesus coming to him to be baptized, and that makes sense. We so often object to Jesus. We say, not your way, but mine. Not your way, but my way is the better way. If I were Jesus, I would have done things a little differently. If I were Jesus, I wouldn't have bothered with water. If I were Jesus, I would have just shouted it from the rooftops, and everyone could hear, and everyone would believe, and that would be the end of the story. Thank goodness I am not Jesus, because I don't know the way he knows. You don't know the way he knows. John doesn't know the way he knows. And Jesus makes promises. And John is corrected by Jesus, and John submits. And it is a beautiful example for you and for me. What does John gain by submitting to Jesus? By baptizing Jesus according to his word? Well, John sees a vision of creation all over again. The heavens are open, the voice comes from above, the dove descends. John sees the fulfillment of the righteousness of God in Jesus' baptism because he listened to him, because he did what Jesus said. And so think of it in this way. In the baptism of Jesus, Jesus shows you that there's no better way to enter into life than through these holy waters. There is no better place to be joined to God himself, to receive all the treasures of heaven, than in holy baptism, where Christ has promised to be. That is what you received when you were baptized. You were brought to the waters, to the place where Jesus promised to meet you, and there he met you. He did not leave you hanging. He did not leave you standing all by yourself at the altar, but instead he was there, making the promises to you just like he said he would, saving you, washing you, making you clean. There is no better gift you could receive than the gifts you receive as a child of God through baptism, in which God's name was placed on you, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the name of the triune God who created everything with a word and redeemed you with a word, taking the blood of Jesus and covering all of your sins, 
taking the blood of Jesus and making you holy and pure for all eternity. The fact is, you don't have to worry about sin, not because you've managed it, not because you've got a good luck charm. You don't have to worry about sin because you belong to Christ. He is yours and you are his. And so treasure it. Cling to your baptism. Hold fast to that. Remember it like you would remember your wedding day. Picture it the way you would picture your wedding day. Beautiful and adorned as a bride, fit for her husband, given eternal promises that can never be broken. That's what we see in baptism. That's what we gain by baptism. That is the gift that our Heavenly Father wants to give us through Christ Jesus. Rejoice and be glad. You are his beloved children, and with you he is well pleased. To God alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen. Amen.